Murray Wills had stolen two bases already. Johnny Torres. The Cincinnati pitcher was wild. Frank Robinson was sulking and was hitting nothing but foul balls. And the Dodgers were on their way to clinching another National League pennant when suddenly... Out of the darkness near the left field bullpen came the shadowy moving, scrunching, hawking, scrunching, gnawing figure of a gigantic gray rat with red eyes. He darted in front of the outfielder who went... We called in horror. This gigantic rat tore right down the left field foul line. Past third base. The third baseman. He turned right. Paused briefly. Stuck out his venomous tongue for one brief instant at the assembled movie stars who had gathered behind the screen to cheer on their heroes. And then... Into the Dodger dugout itself. The players scattered. For one brief instant, the rat ran up and down the players' bench, looking out across the visitors' dugout, and then disappeared forever. Or did he? Or did he? Was this an evil portent of things to come? <laughs> Only the shadow knows the evil that lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> How about that for a story? That happened the other night at a night game, a giant rat. I wonder how those little whoopee people who go out to Shea Stadium, you know, the banner carriers, those little happy fans out there. I wonder... <laughs> you know, speaking of speaking of the evil, would you please set up for me, Matt, the second cut that we played? The second cut there. We were prepared this little uh, mess of pottage for you. And while you're doing that, wait, while you're setting that up, Matt... Will you please touch the big red button there, the one with the D-O-L-L-E-R-S-I-N-G-G-G-E, whoopee. Why is Valentine here like a rocket flight? Why is Valentine here like an opening night? Why is Valentine here like a marching band? A race that finishes neck and neck. For a ride on a toboggan slide Why is Valentine feel like a beautiful fall? Why is Valentine feel like a fireman's ball? And why is Valentine feel like a kite in a windy sky? There's more spirit to it than a safari If you want to start Valentine beer. There's more spirit to it. Oh, I get all, I get all drawn into these showbiz commercials. 
Have you noticed that the, that the the showbiz is taking over in every department? I mean, in the commercial world, have you noticed that they say Valentine beer is an opening night? Ta 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 ta. Or there's no business like a beer business. There's no business I know. There ain't no business like sudsy sudsy sudsies. There ain't no You're not drinking beer anymore, friends. You're drinking an opening night. I'll tell you. And you're getting bad reviews. Well, uh, I, I wonder how many of you, Matt. Should I? Should I really? Should I start telling the inside stories of the, the that kind of thing again? I wonder how many of you have ever actually experienced an opening night, though. I mean, you know, we hear about opening nights all the time, and you see pictures of people down at Sardis. And, uh, you know, everybody's yelling and hollering, and you see uh, Sammy Davis Jr. reading his reviews and calling up Frank Sinatra and all that jazz, that, that showbiz razzmatazz. Have you noticed that they never show you pictures of people who have just experienced an opening night, and they have been B-L-A-S-T-E-D'd, blasted right off the boards? This obscenity, which was visited last night in the Broaders Theater, once again proves that the American theater is decadent and rotten. Not only that, the actors and their ridiculous misconceptions of the role... You don't see that crowd, do you, at Sardis? Not a bit of it. I wonder whether you'd be interested in such stories, as I have myself been involved in a couple of monstrous turkeys... Uh, and have sat through monstrous opening night parties and have been part of monstrous opening night parties where $18 million was spent at Sardis. And the first, you know, you know there's trouble when they don't bring the papers in. <laughs> they station the guy out at the door to keep papers out of Sardis on nights like that. Do you want to hear some stories about that? Isn't it terrible that nobody, nobody recognized the guy that sang... What a rambling rose of the wild wood. Now, you, you think it... That reminds me, uh, speaking of uh, has been this is W-O-R, A-M and F-M, New Yorkie. And uh, we will be here until they lower the B-O-M. And that's the bomb there. Uh, <laughs> speaking of bombs... Uh, <laughs> that reminds me. I just made the station break, didn't I? It was, wow. I could do a whole show of station breaks here. And some stations do. I heard one station the other day. I was waiting for them to give the time. And I listened to it for about 18 and a half minutes on my little transistor. And all I kept doing was repeating there over and over again. First sung by a rock and roll group. Then it sounded like sung by the uh, Andrews sisters. And the, then the announcer himself sung it four times with his name intertwined in it. And for 18 minutes, I got nothing but station break all the time. And, uh, and a lot of yelling about the Beatles. But no, you know, one way or the other. Yeah, hey, speaking of that, speaking of, of, of real horror and the, and the idea of a rat running out on the field uh, at Chavez, Marie, uh, Chavez Ravine in the middle of a big whoopee ball game. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a carnival air these days about baseball. It isn't really real anymore. Hey, did you hear the, the, the great uh, interview by the general manager of the Cleveland Club the other day. You know, Cleveland is now in the race for the pennant, and they're really going. Well, it seems that all of a sudden, out of the blue, a, a, a gigantic plague struck the Cleveland ballpark. And what that plague was, was that guys began to sell some kind of an enormous plastic horn out in front of the ballpark. And 87 million people bought these horns, Larry. They brought them into the ballpark, 
And five minutes later, there were 10,000 guys blowing. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, they were the most obscene, rotten, irritating, bugging horns you ever heard in your life. Wah, wah, wah. And you could not hear. They, 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 they were. It was such a cacophony. They couldn't broadcast the games. The players couldn't see. They, the sound was causing the air to shimmy. Well, the next day, the Cleveland management uh, made a rule that anybody who brought a a, a a a horn like that to the ballpark would get it confiscated at the gate. <laughs> and he could get it back when he left. And if he didn't want to give him the horn, forget it. He didn't come to the ball game. And that was the end of that scene. I wonder, uh, of course, it's already beginning to spread, but have you ever tried to watch a ball game at Shea Stadium? I'll tell you, it makes Roman circuses look like greasy kid stuff. It really does. Uh, there were three guys about the, about a, an aisle and a half away from me a couple of days ago when I was out there. They not only had a horn, but they had the kind of horn that they use on yachts for distress purposes. Yeah, honestly, it had a big, it had a big air thing with a, with a valve on it. And, uh, this thing is, and, and on the side it says, can be heard over 17 miles in rough seas. You know, that kind of thing. And now they didn't blow it when anything happened or anything. They, they just decided to, and that would pump it up with a bicycle pump. And everybody sitting around had a splitting out of this world headache. Their head was booming after about five minutes of this. And, and I, I was wondering, of course, what kind of audience participation is next in the various sports? Did you see the other day in a Met game? A guy jumped out of the field, out of, out of the stands, ran over, and fielded a ground ball in fair territory. Literally fielded it right in front of the outfielder, ran back in the stands, and they didn't lay a hand on him. And uh, somehow that was accepted by by the by the management. And uh, <laughs> it's part of that new that new strange. Uh, well, the only word I can use to describe the attitude that many people have developed, even when they're going to see something that they pay good money to see. A kind of a he the hell with the others attitude. And I'm sorry if, if that word offends you, but that's a word that covers the situation. Uh, this is a kind of a, not so much the hell with you attitude, but a sort of down with the others attitude. And that, that is coupled with something that uh, many sociologists have seen come along, you know. Uh, they, they, they've watched a kind of creeping cruelty begin to sneak into our, our, our world. And the idea of a rat running across the outfield with those lights and all those people wearing those little funny baseball-going hats and drinking their beer and watching the, uh, watching the ball team. Ball teams aren't really ball teams anymore. They're kind of fun stars. Uh, very, very many people really go out to, to see Casey. Uh, you know, and, and if Casey wasn't so cute, they would be on Casey's neck, and they would have been on Casey's neck two and a half years ago for the terrible baseball that's played out at Chase Stadium. You know, the kinds of not running out pop-ups and, and the stopping short when you see there's a fly ball coming down, you can't quite get to it. Playing it on the second bounce. You know the kind of thing you used to do, Matt, when you were a kid and they'd hit a fly ball out at you? I saw a Met outfielder do just exactly what we used to do when we were playing for the United Presbyterian All-Stars. When somebody would shoot, you know, hit a fly ball out there, and you know that the only way you can get it is by making this this dive, you know, where you land on your gut and you make a try for it. There's only one way to do it, and so he did it the other way. He sort of circled around a little bit, made a made a quick pass, and then backed up and played it on the second bounce. 
It went for a double, by the way, because he threw it to the wrong base on top of it. And nobody said anything. This, uh, the announcer uh, pretended like that was a normal play. He says, uh, uh, Charlie Brown uh, plays it on the second hop. Oh, what a shot that was. And he tosses it into the plate. Uh, the runner pulls up at second with a... He did not say that he should... <laughs> well, you got to keep on the myth. And, and you know, I, I suppose I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't bring in some of these inside things, but one of the local ball teams, which will go unnamed, I know of a man who did some spectacular photography uh, at one of the local ball parks, uh, photographing the new kind of nut that is becoming part of major sporting events. I'm talking about the violent nut who will kill 17 people to get to a foul ball. You know, and leave eight guys with busted necks and a set of ribs. The kind of nut that comes out with the, with the fire siren just sits there and blows it throughout the entire game. You know, there's one guy who's famous out at, out at one of the new ballparks in the area. Uh, and I have seen him at these ballparks. He's, a, he's purportedly a doctor. Now, I presume he is. I'd only worry if he was mine. Uh, this guy is, is purportedly a doctor. And I saw him. I, I watched him one night. I was curious to see. Do you know that in nine innings, I don't think that guy looked at the ball game more than five and maybe six minutes, all told. And the only time he looked was when somebody hit a long ball. It was a home run. Then he looked at the ball game. Outside of that, he was always watching the crowd, holding up banners, walking around with little signs. Going, mm, 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 and watching up to the booth to see whether or not the TV camera was on him. He spent the whole evening doing that jazz. Well, anyway, this friend of mine photographed, uh, uh, not friend, he's a, he's a man I know of, I'll put it that way. He photographed all kinds of scenes like that. And then in the middle of that, he photographed real ball fans who are totally outnumbered, and I might also add, uh, usually outmobbed by this crowd. And he put it together in a wild movie called Requiem for a Fan. And the... <laughs> He couldn't even, uh, they tried to buy it up. They, they, they tried to suppress the whole thing and buy it up. And believe me, you'll never see this picture, I presume. You know, speaking of strange kinds of horrors and the new kind of horror that's associated with a kind of showbiz, I suppose you're aware that more and more on uh, TV on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, there is the purported sports show. Have you noticed that they don't make the differentiation between sport and exhibitions? Now, uh, many of us used to see, you remember, like demolition exhibitions, you know, where guys drive cars into each other and they explode. That, that has become a sport now. They call it sport, and they will couple it with the ski jumping at Garmerstadt. Uh, <laughs> we'll take you to Jim McKay, who will tell you how the Olympic team is doing in Yugoslavia. Take it away, Jim. And then you see this guy with earmuffs and his breath, you know, say, well, uh, I'm here in uh, Garmerstadt, Yugoslavia, and the, the, uh, the seven milliliter, the seven liter uh, high jump is about to begin, and we will return to that in just a moment. But first, I understand that Bobby Bobby has got the new results coming in from the demolition derby in Dayton. And then they squish. Uh, Charlie Brown, lefty Charlie Brown, is still alive in his Ford V8 1932 convertible. You'll see him out there now. His car is on fire. Oh, look at that Hudson roaring into the fence. It's exploding and blowing up. The fans are now throwing hand grenades out onto the field. Here comes the ambulances. And now let's take you back to Bobby Bobby out there in Garmstadt, Switzerland, who will give you the results on the high-jumping contest there. And then... Have you noticed they make no differentiation? Well, that's the new kind of horror that's creeping into the sporting events. Uh, 
part of it, of course, is uh, pro football, that whole thing. And and uh, do you have my you have my great record lined up there? All right, let's go. Uh, are you, have you wondered have you wondered what what is happening uh, in the world of uh, sawdust out there? Well, I I haven't thought about the world of sawdust much. Now sawdust is the carny world. Do you remember when they used to have stuff where you throw you know you throw baseballs at the at milk bottles and you'd spin things you know and you'd win cupid dolls. Uh, once in a while, a guy would jump off a high wire someplace into three inches of water. So, hey, listen, that reminds me. Do you want me to tell you? Uh, all right, I, I, I will tell you that story immediately following this. I will tell you right now, as uh, courtesy of uh, UPI, what is happening, uh, courtesy, this is taken from a clipping uh, of, of a reporter who visited a contemporary carnival. And what is actually happening in a carnival these days? Bring it on, Matthew, please. Chicago. The shapely girl, her arms chained, watched in horror as a subhuman monster stretched her lover cruelly on the rack. Her bosom softly undulated. Behind her, a man hung, face down, roasting slowly over a bed of burning white-hot coals. Carnival horror shows are getting more horrible by the minute. The blood drips drips, drips. The groans resound. The torn plastic flesh almost hurts the onlooker as he watches with wide open, horror-seeking eyes. According to the people who make the devices and those who buy them, the public loves it and is asking for more. Horror gimmicks were everywhere at the International Outdoor Amusement Exposition, a trade show. Sex and sick humor have moved in to the carnival world. Even the female vampire has an animated chest, as the sales literature discreetly describes it. jungle explorer opens a crocodile's gaping jaws and his blood spurts out over the concrete and sawdust floor. Inside he hears the words, Livingston, I presume. thought you ought to know. <laughs> you know, uh, that reminds me, uh, that reminds me of, uh, hey, you know, uh, well, it's, a, it's a funny, funny, a funny feeling, though, when you're involved in a show of that kind and you see the glazed eyes of people looking at you. Did I ever tell you about the time that I worked inside of a lion's cage, an open lion's cage with lions and tigers in the cage? Ever tell you about that time? 
Well, <laughs> this is not, this is not, no, I'm, I'm not inventing anything. And, you know, it's funny, people will, you know, they're writing and say, did that actually happen to you? There'd be no point in me inventing this. Uh, but a person who has, has lived a, a somewhat checkered life and who has worked in a somewhat checkered world, the showbiz world, has done many checkered things. And uh, some guy who will, who will write to me, you know, he'll write from Kearney, New Jersey. You know, he'll work, he's worked forever in some little plant that makes uh, a trailer hitches. And he's been there ever since he was three, and he'll be there when he's 83. <laughs> and he wonders, you know, did this actually happen? How could this be? Oh, there's a world out there, fellas, and you'd be surprised. Well, I, I was euchred one time. And uh, this is the kind of stuff they just don't do on radio anymore. In fact, uh, it has nothing to do with the past. It's that radio has lost a great deal of its imagination over the years. You know, one of the big problems in radio, and has been for a long time, is that they can't decide, and this is true of television too, whether they're in advertising or in entertainment. And the, most of the big companies in radio and have voted now the fact that, you know, it's just quite obvious they're in advertising, so... <laughs> And anything that happens along the line that's entertainment is usually just a, a, a peculiar accident and invariably will result in many memos from the sales department because that's distracting from the ads. It's getting in the way of the commercials, and uh, it's a peculiar kind of reversed uh, idea, but nevertheless quite valid. Uh, I, I've uh, seen this split go down through the ranks, and uh, today uh, it's very rare that you ever hear anybody in a radio station or a television station say, hey, boy, Mac, wow, that was a fantastic show you did Saturday night. Uh, you never hear that. Uh, it's, in fact, considered rather bad form for anybody in a radio station or a television station to enjoy what is going on on the radio or on TV. It's considered very gauche. <laughs> so you, will, you, won't, you won't see much of that around, and I'm always a little surprised when somebody stops me in the hall and says, wow, man, I heard Saturday's show and holy smokes. And you can always tell this is a guy that still loves radio, and he is not long for the business. Uh, for example, tonight, Barry Farber met me in the office, and he said, Hey, Chef. And I said, What? He said, I heard your show at the Limelight Saturday night. He says it was a gas. He said, I was sitting in the house. I was falling on the floor, roaring and yelling and hollering. And I said, Barry, wait a minute. Don't let anybody in the station hear you say that. They will not only be shocked, they'll be sickened. Uh, the only thing that guys in radio or television love is people in other mediums. And so every last salesman will spend his last dime here to go see a bad show by a bad comic, two-bit nightclub in town, and wait in line to do it. Uh, <laughs> but as far as what's going on here, he never heard it. And uh, that's true in, uh, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically, but that's nevertheless just a condition of the business in general. But there was a time when it wasn't like that. When, uh, when radio stations used to have great big meetings about what kind of wild, exciting things they should do. And you can't even believe that, can you, Matt? You've only been here a while, but we used to have weekly meetings in the radio stations where I work, and the engineers and the salesmen and the program people would all try to figure out new and wild, exciting program ideas to do. Not wild, exciting new commercial accounts to get. We have those meetings endlessly here. <laughs> I mean, you know, how are we going to get the BBD and all? I'll tell you what, Fred, you got a brother-in-law over there. We'll call and we'll sell him Martha Dean. We'll get on the phone, Al McCann, blah, blah, in Hockergut, Peter Lynn Hayes in Hockergut. And uh, never once anybody says, hey, listen, i got a great idea for a show to do Wednesday night. But uh, one one time, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, innocently in the middle of this meeting, and uh, I'm a cool 16 and a half, roughly, you know, 
maybe 17 and a half, you know, and I'm sitting there with a gommy look on my face, you know, and I'm, I really dig being in radio and all that stuff, and all the exciting, all this showbiz. And uh, on, on all sides, there's a big ring of people, and there's salesmen and producers and, and uh, directors and everything. They even had directors in radio in those days, wow, and writers and everything. And uh, I, I, I would sort of half those off sometimes. I would, I would drift off. Uh, you, know, you know the meeting paralysis that sets in? You've all had that. When you're, you know, certain parts of your body start going to sleep, and uh, you, you feel it a little bit, and you wiggle, you know, and your head starts buzzing, and they're talking away there. And about halfway through, about the third or fourth nap that I was having in the middle of this meeting, I suddenly became aware they're talking about me. And uh, one of the guys says, hey, that's a fantastic idea. We can get the lines in tomorrow. This is the engineering department. We'll get the lines in tomorrow. Hey, look, wait, wait, just a minute, wait a minute. I'll give him a call. Uh, hey, hello, Charlie? Yeah, we need lines down to the arena, yeah. No, no, Class D, that's all right. That's Class lines. That's what I'm making. Just any kind of lines. Get them down there. Get them down there by tonight. Yeah. Well, we're going to go out of here tonight at 7 with it. Yeah. Call up the phone company. Tell them we got to have it. Okay. Click. And then they're, they're all excited, and it turns out that they had decided while I was snoozing off that Shepard is going to do his show from inside the main ring, the wild animal cage, the den... Inside the main ring, he was going to do not a five-minute show, Larry and Matt, not a one-hour show, five... Oh. And, I, you know, holy smoke roonies And, and I'm, of course, uh, I'm, I'm at the stage here, you know, where I think nothing can ever happen to anybody, especially me. And I say, oh, wow, that's a great idea, fellas. You mean I'm going to go down there? We're going to... He says, yeah, we'll fix you up on the mic, and, and, and you go down there, and you work inside this cage. And that they thought it was a great idea. Now, it had nothing to do with a commercial account. They did not have the circus as a commercial account, in case you're interested. They just thought it would be a great idea for a wonderful show. And I said, I, the immediate thing, you know, hit me. I says, uh, well, well, what if something happens? And there's a brief pause. And the program director says, well, great. Great. We'll have a standby on. He said, make a great show. It's a fantastic show. If something happens, oh, you know, he said, they'll know how they'll shoot them or something. He said, they'll make a great show. Yeah, well, that's not a bad idea. And it seemed like 37 and a half seconds later, I am standing in a chute. And next to me is a cage that was like a chute. Have you ever seen how they put the lions and the tigers in those those rings? Do you know how they get them in there? Well, they back. <laughs> they have a chute. It's like a, a, a an animal funnel. Uh, really is what it is in effect. And they back these cages on the outside. You don't see it. It's done in the back there. They back these cages with a tiger or a lion. And incidentally, they mix about as great as uh, Billy Graham mixes with Shepard on a Saturday night. Uh, they, 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 you know, it's water and all the rest of it. And they just don't get along good at all. And uh, they start weeding these lions and these tigers down a long chute in the back there. And they get if they, they one by one. They, they push their cage up against this funnel which really is a funnel that leads into the center ring. And in the center ring there is the guy with the white pants, and he's got the white, uh, he's got the white shirt on, and he's got a black belt. And that guy, by the way, just died this past week. And that's the reason I'm telling you the story. It was Clyde Beatty. I knew Clyde Beatty, and a, fascinating, a more fascinating guy I never knew in my life. Uh, talk about a guy with steely eyes. I mean, this was no kidding. And, uh, you know, you always, uh, you always have the idea about animal tamers, the animal trainers, the guys that work in circuses and that. You, you have, because we are so used to everything being phony in our world. 
We are so used to the idea that everything has rubber teeth, uh, that all the snakes have had everything taken out of them, and that there ain't nothing left, and, and probably they're all operated by transistors somehow. And, oh, forget it. Forget it. For about ten minutes before we were to go on, Beatty grabbed me. This is how I got to know him and where I first met him. He grabbed me by the collar and said, Now listen, you. He says, This is not kid stuff. <laughs> he said, Now I, he says, I want you to listen exactly to what I say. And you listen to what I say. Do not, I repeat, do not turn your back on the first three animals I will allow in the ring. Do you hear me? You watch those three. Now, and I said, don't, don't turn your back. He said, now I will turn my back. But I am Clyde Beatty. You are Gene Shepard. Let's remember that. They are afraid of me. You look like a cheeseburger to them. And they like cheeseburgers. Okay? All right, now. Now, furthermore, he said, furthermore, if I fire three quick shots in the air, you back up as fast as you can to the door to the right and stand with your back to it and bend over. I said, what? <laughs> you know what? Like my little microphone, we had this little two-button carbon mic that we got free for premiums from the Ralston people, you know, and I got this thing with a little cord hanging on it, you know, and I'm looking, and my engineer is sitting next to me, his eyes look like saucers. And he said, he said, well, he said to Beatty, you know, typical engineer, then he says, he says, well, well, if something happens, he said, will I have a cue so I'll know how to give him back? He says, you will know, Mac, if something happens. He says, now, now, remember, and he says, do another thing. Do not move ever fast. Stand still. Don't move your head quickly from side to side. Don't suddenly raise your hand. He says, and that is important. Do not raise your hand. I said, well, how am I going to throw a cue with the Charlie in there? He says, I don't care about Charlie. I am worrying about my lungs. And animals like lungs. He says, okay, all right, now, let's go. He says, now, now, he says, all right, he says, now, you stand back. He says, I want you to get used to them a little bit. When we walked into the runway in the back where they had they had all these cages all lined up like a little train. There was a lion, a couple of tigers. There was uh, another lion. It was a black panther. He was a friendly old fellow. There was a black panther. <laughs> oh, wow. There was, a, there was a leopard or two. And uh, hanging around the outskirts was uh, the, the, uh, the piece de resistance, the soupçon of his act. He was one of the very few guys who ever used cats and bears in one cage. He would throw in at the last instant, in would come this unbelievable, and I don't know whether he did it later, he had this fantastic polar bear, and they tell me that polar bears are one of the worst animals ever created anywhere for, uh, you know, for anti-people attitudes. <laughs> they definitely got it. So he, he walks up and down. He says, now, come on, I get used to these, and I walk up, and I'm smelling them. And these animals were getting excited. They knew they were going on. As soon as they bring them out, you know, they knew it. And you could uh, pace them back. And, blah, 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 blah. and one of them was just sort of cowering in the edge of his cage, just way down there in the corner. And you could see those big claws. He had the claws out. And he's going, oh, was that an exciting feeling to hear that? Two yellow eyes looking out. He says, that's Sam. That's one of them. I said, oh, that's Sam. That's a great name for him, you know. 
IPA. He says in Swahili, that means killer. <sighs> and so we go up and down the cages. They're getting used to them. Well, as the animals get ready to go on, the excitement causes them to generate a, a fascinating kind of musk. They begin to have a, a wild, peculiar, strange, and it makes you very, very, vaguely sick to your stomach, uh, almost an overpowering animal smell that it goes far beyond anything that you ever run into zoos, far beyond anything you ever run into in the normal relationships with animals of one kind or another, because they're all excited, you know, they're, they're fantastic excitement. It's a, it's a vague, sexual, hungry, carnivore-type excitement, and uh, they're, they're, they're pacing back, and some of them are, are real happy about it, you know, they're, and, 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 and he always had, uh, apparently, I don't know anything about animal training, I can just say that what he told me, he always had two or three or four completely reliable animals uh, in there as a kind of leavening agent, a sort of uh, a catalyst. You know, these were animals who uh, calming, a calming element in this thing. But he said this. He says, one thing about animals, you've got to remember this, that once the excitement hits them, once the panic strikes, there is no such thing. No, he said, I repeat, there is no such thing as a tame lion or tiger. He says, they'll all go. Every last one of them. So we walked up and down. I'm getting this smell, and you know, my engineer is sort of trading after me, and we're a little worried about this whole scene. You know, oh boy. And uh, he says, "Now look," he says, "I want you to go in the cage first. You go in the cage first, and I will allow the animals to come in after that." He said, "I will be in the cage. I will be between you and the animals." And he said, "I will move always. I will keep you between. I will be between you and the animals always." He says, "And make sure that you stay there. Don't move out behind me." He says, "Because I can't watch you." He says, "You'll have to watch me." All right. And outside, you could hear the band going. And the animals are going ape. Oh, wow. You know, they hear that. And then the animals are now, here is the most daring animal trainer of all time. Who will work for the first time in any tent in the Big Tap in America. He will work not only two lions and a tiger. He will use two untamed leopards and the only man to ever drive before him, a polar bear. Here he comes, the biggest animal trainer of all time, the great favorite of a continental circus lover as everywhere, the one and only, uh, incomparable, uh, Clyde uh, Beatty. Da -da 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 -da. And in we go. And Beatty stands there with his back to me and that black belt and those white pants, his back arched, and boy, you never saw a guy that was more on it in your life. The cage was... And in comes Sam. He flicks one. And up goes Sam. And Sam looks right down at me, those two big yellow light bulbs. In comes Leo. In comes Simba. In comes the black leopard. And I can see out in the darkness millions of people all watching. Their eyes lit with the expectation that any minute now, any minute now, ripped from limb to limb, ripped to shreds, would be Clyde Beatty. And that little guy in there holding that microphone with the little skinny wire that went out way out in back where Charlie, my engineer, was sitting eating his baby Ruth bars. <laughs> oh, there are many things 
in the land of the living sun. There are many things deep down in the heart and next to the liver. Oh, yes. And those polar bears, those black leopards like it all. Ah, 